Well, as John mentioned, we are starting a new series this morning. It is titled, Written in Stone, God's Purposes for the Law. And, you know, hardly a Sunday morning goes by that we don't talk about or reference God's commands, God's laws in some form or fashion. And uh, the Old Testament laws, you know, primarily come from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So that's where we're going to be camping for about the next six months. Okay, so it's not going to be a two-year series. It could be. But uh, six months, that'll take us right up about to our our Christmas series. So just to give you a heads up on that. You know, many Christians kind of have this impression of the Old Testament as, as being solely about the law. That, that's really the dominant theme of the Old Testament. And the New Testament, you know, is all about grace. God's grace. But in reality, the Old Testament is filled with examples of God's grace. And the New Testament actually contains more commands than the Old Testament. Right? There are 613 distinct commands in the Old Testament, but there are around 800 commands in the New Testament. It surprises a lot of people. So why study them? Well, to understand God's law is to understand God himself. That's why we study them. They give us a picture of God's nature, his values, and his character. And it's really about relationship. These aren't just arbitrary laws for us to toe the line on. As we get to understand what God is like, we can emulate that. We become like him because we can't really have fellowship with a God unless we enter into what he's like. And that's, of course, the process that he begins in us when we come to faith in him. I also think it's going to be a really timely and relevant series because many many Christians today are questioning the role of the Old Testament law in our present daily lives. There's all kinds of debates surrounding this that that you'll hear about from time to time. We question its role in society. We question its role even with with our contemporary government. You know? So I think it's going to be a timely series. It's going to be a practical study, getting to the heart of what's right and wrong and what's loving and what's not loving, and why. You know, we live in a moral universe. Right and wrong is not just, you know, some arbitrary human construct shifting with the changing norms of society. This morning, we're going to begin by introducing the main character, whose name is almost synonymous with the law. And a person who goes on an unexpected journey. Okay, that person, of course, is Moses. Moses. (laughs) Here he's famously portrayed by Charlton Heston, who was in the famous movie, The Ten Commandments, classic. But like us sometimes, Moses was a fairly reluctant participant in God's plan for him. He made excuses, lots of excuses. And I think we can often do the same. So how about we pray? And uh, let's ask God to help us learn from Moses' life, both, both the good and the bad. 
Father, we do thank you for this chance to open your word again. Thank you. You said whatever was written in former times was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Give us hope this morning that you are at work in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Give us a picture of who you are, God, so that we can know you better. That's, that's why we're here. We want to know you better. Thanks you, thank you that you long for that for us. Bless our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's briefly re- review a little background information. We're going to go through the first four chapters of Exodus in this one message. So we're really going to camp on the chapters three and four, but let's take a look at the ancestry of Moses here. So, so you've got the beginning of the Jewish race with, with Abraham. He had his son Isaac. He had a son Jacob. Then Jacob, of course, had the 12 patriarchs, um, 12 sons of Jacob. One of them was Levi. That was the uh, later to be the priestly tribe. And then many generations later, you get Moses and his brother Aaron. So the book of Genesis ends with Joseph. You can see him right by Levi there. One of, he's also one of Jacob's 12 sons. He's in Egypt, where all of his family joins him in order to survive a seven-year famine. And they stay there and they prosper because of the favor granted them through the, the reigning pharaoh in Egypt. But when that pharaoh dies, the next king doesn't really know Joseph at all. And he feels threatened by this multitude of people that the Israelites have become. And so he enslaves them. He fears them so much that he orders all the Egyptians to basically kill every male Hebrew baby that is born, casting them into the Nile River. Okay, So in other words, mass infanticide. Moses, of course, is hidden by his mother. She floats him in the reeds in a little ark and hides him there, and he avoids this fate. But then he's found by who else but Pharaoh's daughter. She finds him, and she adopts him as her own. And so Moses grows up in this this, uh, royal family. And when he's older, he goes out and sees all the slaves, his, his brethren, being mistreated. And he sees an Egyptian beating one of the Hebrew slaves. So in an act of compassion, he kills the Egyptian taskmaster. Well, Pharaoh hears about it, and he tries to kill Moses. So around the age of 40, Moses flees to the land of Midian, which is in the area of northwest Saudi Arabia today. And he works as a shepherd for Jethro, his father-in-law, for the next 40 years. And God humbles him. In fact, the Bible says that, that Moses becomes the most humble man on the face of the earth. Well, then one day, out of the blue... Moses is herding his sheep, and he sees a burning bush, which isn't necessarily all that strange. I mean, sometimes lightning strikes, you know, would would ignite uh, the brush in that area. But the strange thing about this, of course, is that the bush burns, but it's not consumed. This perks Moses' curiosity, so he goes a little closer to check it out. It's then that God speaks to him 
from the bush. I mean, what a surprise that must have been. God could have spoken through anything. But think about it. You know, what is, what is less intimidating than a shrubbery? You know? Can you imagine yourself sitting at breakfast one morning, sipping your coffee, you know, and, and the chia pet on your windowsill suddenly bursts into flames and starts talking to you? This was Moses' call. And God had been preparing him for this his whole life, though he didn't even know it. Does God have a calling on your life? Many of us would think not. You know, we haven't had this kind of experience, right? I believe God does. I believe he has a calling or purpose or mission for each of us. And they're all going to look somewhat different. When our kids were young, one book that they read was called The Cross and the Switchblade. <clears throat> you might have heard of it. They made a movie about it. But um, it's about an ordinary guy whom God uses to reach gang members in New York City. His name is David Wilkerson. And do you know what kind of calling it took for him to devote his life to the dangerous task of reaching gang members for Christ? Well, one day, he happened to see a picture in Time magazine of gang members who were being imprisoned for killing people. And he felt compassion for them. That's it! That was his burning bush moment. That was his call to a lifetime of prison ministry. A single photo in Time magazine. Wow. So God can use just about anything to get our attention regarding what he wants us to do and how he wants to use us. But we have to be open. God reveals to Moses that he's supposed to return to Egypt where he still has a price on his head and deliver the Israelites from their 400-year bondage to slavery. This is in Exodus chapter 3, page 46 in the House Bibles. But Moses has a problem with that, doesn't he? In fact, he has multiple problems with that. Five excuses not to go. And I think one of the reasons this is included in Scripture for us is that these are some of the same excuses that we often give for not obeying God. I mean, have you ever just flat out said no to God? Jonah did. He's kind of famous for that, right? How'd that go? <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe God wanted you to just get up early one day and spend some extra time with him, but you hit the snooze button. Or maybe when those two lanes were merging into one, he wanted you to let that second car slip in ahead of you, but you didn't. I've done that. <laughs> All of us have said no to God. Some of us, I think, have you know, a, a filter uh, or a gauge to decide whether or not you know, God's requests seem reasonable to us or not. But you know what? God is not reasonable, <laughs> at least by most people's standards. Do you realize that God commanded Noah to build a boat one and a half football fields long? 
without power tools and then somehow fill it with every species of animal. I mean, Answers in Genesis estimates that to be about 6,744 animals. <laughs> God commanded Abraham to take a knife and sacrifice his only son on an altar. God whittled down Gideon's army and then he told him to go to war with odds of 450 to 1 against him. God told a poor widow to give up her last bite of food to Elijah before she and her son were going to starve to death. God told Jonah to travel 500 miles to Nineveh, Israel's enemy, and tell them to repent single-handedly. God told his disciples to feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He told a rich young ruler to sell everything he had and give it all to the poor. Now, most of us would call these requests unreasonable, right? And we would feel the liberty to decline and say, thanks, God, but no thanks. But that mentality should scare you. Because you and I don't understand the weightiness of a single step of obedience. We don't. Do you, really, well, you probably don't realize that your salvation and the salvation, really, of the whole human race was hinging upon this one single act of obedience by Moses. If the Hebrew race had perished in Egypt, then the family line of the Messiah would have perished, and Jesus would not have been born, and we would be lost. Now, Moses didn't understand any of that. He was clueless. And we don't have a clue either of the ripple effect of these seemingly insignificant choices that we make. And so we sometimes view God's commands as mere suggestions. Now, thankfully, Jesus never once considered that he had the luxury of being able to tell God no. And we're sitting here this morning because of that. So with that lengthy introduction, let's take a look at Moses' interactions with God and the five excuses he gave in order to avoid what God was asking of him. Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 11 to 12, should be, yeah, 10 to 12. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So what was Moses' first excuse? His identity. He sees himself as an unqualified nobody. You know, he's it's like from Jakku or whatever, you know. Nobody's from there. It's, it's, he's a nobody. Forty years earlier, he had no doubt about who he was. He believed he perhaps was the one to deliver the Israelites, at least one of them, by killing that Egyptian taskmaster. But now, after 40 years of herding sheep on the backside of the desert, he doubts his value and ability, and he says, who am I to do such a thing? 
God answers him in verse 12. He tells Moses, that doesn't matter who Moses is. The important thing is that God will be with him. Moses thinks there, there must be something special about this bush that he sees burning, right? But no, the point is that any bush, any instrument, any person can do what's supernatural if God is in it. If God is in it. You know, a, a lack of confidence in my own ability, it's no problem for God. I mean, what confidence does a shrub have? You know, what gifts, what talents, what abilities does a shrub have? God loves to use the dullest, plainest, most ordinary things to display his glory. Moses' second excuse is one of ignorance. He doesn't know what name this God goes by. In Exodus 3, 13 and 14, it says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. We've got to remember that God has been utterly silent for the past 430 years. It's almost a dozen generations. And the Israelites have been exposed to dozens of pagan gods. So when Moses comes to them and says that God has sent him, you know, their natural response is, which one? And God tells Moses to say, I am has sent me to you. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Like the Israelites, you and I need to know his name. We need to know him if we're going to trust him. Let's read on. Exodus 4.1, Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. So Moses' third excuse is the wrongful assumption that the people won't believe him. This is just plain unbelief. Moses is not being prudent here. Okay? You get the feeling he's just kind of grasping at straws, really. Looking for anything that can get him off the hook of having to go back to Egypt. It's like, you know, the lazy sluggard in Proverbs 23 or 22, 13. He shouts, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the street. Why does he say that? Well, he's using a far-fetched excuse for not going out to do his work. Kind of reminds me of Bilbo Baggins, in The Hobbit, when Gandalf says to him, I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure that I'm arranging, and it's been very difficult to find anyone. And Bilbo replies, smoking his pipe, I should think so in these parts. We are plain, quiet folk and have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things make you late for dinner. I can't think what anybody sees in them. Well, what Gandalf is asking of Bilbo seems unreasonable. I mean, he says it could perhaps cost him his life. But what, what, what was God asking of Moses? It was not just unreasonable. It was inconceivable. He was asking an 80-year-old man to stand before the most powerful ruler on earth 
and demand that Pharaoh liberate two million slaves from 400 years of forced captivity. That's the combined population of Fort Collins, Loveland, and Greeley, times four. Moses was probably thinking, how could unarmed slaves hope to resist Pharaoh's world-class army? How could they know what route to take? Who's going to feed these two million people along their journey? Where are they going to find enough water to drink in the desert? God doesn't give Moses any of those details, does he? He just says, go. He does give Moses three miraculous signs to perform, though. His staff can now turn into a snake. He can make his hand leprous at will. And he can turn a pitcher of water from the Nile into blood. And he can pull a rabbit out of a hat, too. Just kidding. But these just seem like cheap parlor tricks, you know? Personally, I think I'd prefer a big army. You see, these weren't the real miracles here. The real miracle was Moses returning to Egypt. Moses' fourth excuse is inadequacy. It's found in Exodus 4.10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Now, we don't know exactly what kind of speech impediment Moses may have had, but it made him feel inadequate and unqualified. You might have heard this before, that God does not call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. It's true. Now, obviously, God was aware of Moses' disabilities before he selected Moses. In fact, God himself gave Moses that impediment. Look what he says in Exodus 4, 11 and 12. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go And I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. This again is a lesson of the burning bush. God is saying any ordinary bush will do as long as I am in it. I am with you, Moses. Your speech issue is no problem for me. Now think with me for a moment of all the heroes of faith that we've read about from our childhood. You know... The next time you feel like God can't use you, remember the following people. Noah. Noah got drunk. Abraham was too old, certainly too old to have a child when he was near 100. Isaac was a coward and a liar. Jacob was a deceiver. Leah was not pretty. Joseph was spoiled and privileged. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a womanizer. And Rahab was a prostitute. Timothy was young. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. Be thankful that's not my issue. (laughs) Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist ate bugs and dressed funny. 
Peter denied Jesus three times. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha was a worrywart. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. The Samaritan woman had five husbands. Zacchaeus was small. Paul murdered Christians. Timothy had a stomach ailment. And my favorite, Lazarus, was dead. You can't get more disqualified than that. Sorry, sorry, God, I'm dead. Did God impress on you anything from that list? Through all these examples, he impressed on me. No more excuses, Perry. No more excuses. God used each of these people mightily, and he can use you and me. Well, despite all this, Moses is still so afraid, so insecure, that he has the audacity to offer up yet a fifth excuse, the excuse of unavailability. Been there, done that. Exodus, in verse 13, we read the words that almost every single one of us have uttered or thought. Exodus 4.13. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. This really isn't an excuse. Moses is out of excuses. This is really just a, a bowing out. This is an abdication, right? At this point, something strange happens. For the first time, God's anger is kindled. Up until now, he's been extremely patient, but even God has his limit. Let's read Exodus 4, 14 to 15. Then... The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. Now, I don't generally view God as one who is sarcastic, but this sounds pretty sarcastic. <laughs> Nevertheless, God graciously accommodates all of Moses' fears and insecurities. God tells Moses that he'll use his brother Aaron to do all the talking. Well, that doesn't exempt Moses from the responsibility of going, does it? But now he'll have to deal with another very imperfect, imperfect addition to God's game plan. Because Aaron is going to make some huge mistakes of his own down the line, causing Moses untold grief. So let's just recap here. Moses' responses to God's command to go. First was identity. Who am I? I'm just an 80-year-old herder of sheep for my father-in-law. I'm nobody. Second, ignorance. Who are you? I don't even know you well enough to really trust you, God. Third, unbelief. It's kind of the what-if syndrome, right? What if they don't believe me? What if it doesn't work? Can I just say there are thousands of what-ifs that will literally cripple us from taking action in this life? But there are no what-ifs with God because he knows the future just as clearly as he knows the past. So risk is really never part of the equation with God. And last, inadequacy. What am I? You know, I don't have the gifts or the eloquence or the brains or the experience, the money, the strength, the influence, the wisdom to succeed in this task. But 
you know, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, jars of clay. Why? That the surpassing greatness of the power may be obviously from God and not from ourselves. You see, all this inadequacy stuff is intentional. God made it that way. And finally, unavailability. Thanks, but no thanks, God. Find somebody else, somebody better. Which of these excuses do you use most with God? To be honest, I've used all of them. All along, God is trying to get Moses to see the difference between I can't and I won't. Moses tells God, I can't. But God tells Moses, no, the real reason is you won't. Many times we tell ourselves things like that. You know, I can't find time to pray. I can't get along with my spouse. I can't discipline the kids like I should. I can't stop overeating. I can't maintain a pure thought life. I can't share the gospel with other people. God's not fooled for a moment. (laughs) If we're going to be honest with God, with others, even with ourselves, we need to fess up and admit the truth that we all have choices in these things. In reality, it's I won't find the time to pray. I won't get along with my spouse and so on. Now, it's true that we can't do these things in ourselves, but God isn't asking us to. God works with us and in us and for us and through us. It's all of him. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 to 5, great promise. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is where? It's from God. Now in this context, the context of our being ministers here, of the gospel, but Paul also applies it broadly. Philippians 4.14 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So dear saints, God is not asking us to do things for him. He's asking us to know and experience him as we enter into and engage in what he's doing. He wants relationship. It's how people get to know each other. It's it's through doing things together. Ever found yourself driving down the road and thinking to yourself, there's got to be more to life than this? I sure have. The good news is there is. And Moses got to experience God and all his wonders, not by seeing a burning bush, but through faith and obedience in scary places. Henry Blackaby's book, Experiencing God, he shares seven things that we must understand before we can experience God in the fullness that he desires. He says, you need to understand God is always at work around you. Two, God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and personal. Three, God invites you to become involved with him in his work. Four, God speaks by the Holy Spirit primarily through his word to reveal his ways and his plans. Five, God's invitation to work with him always leads you to a crisis of faith and action, just like with Moses. Six, you must make big adjustments in your life to join God in what he is doing. And seven, you come to know God 
by experience as you obey him and as he works through you. Band, you guys can come on up. Like with Moses, God asks of us the unreasonable, the inconceivable, the impossible. He asks us to love our enemies, to pray without ceasing, to do good to those who hate us, to not fear man or circumstances, to forgive our brother or sister 70 times, seven times a day, basically without limit, to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. And he asks us to reach every people, tongue, tribe, and nation with his gospel. Impossible! Impossible! But God is the great equalizer. He does the impossible through weak, frail, imperfect, ordinary people like you and me. He's given us all we need. His word, his promises, his power, his example, his Holy Spirit, and his grace. And he says to you, lo, I am with you till the end of the age. Same promise he gave Moses. You just be the bush and I'll be the fire. And the proof that it's all of me is that you will not be consumed. You're not the fuel to be used up and emptied. I'll be the fuel. You see, we're not to serve in our own strength, but in the strength that God supplies. So the only real question left for us is, am I available? Am I available? God has a calling on each of our lives. It might not be as dramatic as that of Moses' call, but he has good works prepared in advance for each and every one of us to do. Good works, big or small, that will require faith and initiative on our parts. God is calling us into an adventure, just like Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbit. Moses was a reluctant, insecure, ordinary guy who was used by an extraordinary God. And I believe that that is God's intention for each one of us. Amen? Father, we thank you for the gospel in the book of Genesis. Just how you didn't, you didn't go to the Israelites in their slavery and first give them the law and say, if you just keep these laws well enough, I'll, I'll save you, I'll deliver you, I'll bring you out of captivity and slavery. No, you, you saved them first. And then you gave them the law. Knowing full well they were going to be grumbling and complaining, not worthy at all of that favor, that mercy, that grace. Every other religion works that way, Lord, but not you. You save us first, just as we are, and then, and then you begin to transform our lives. We thank you, God, for that. Thanks for this series. We pray that you would bless it. You teach us things through it. Pray, Lord, that we would be men and women of no excuses with you, that we would say yes, Lord, to you. Big, big or small, whatever it is, Lord, throughout our day, as your spirit prompts us, God, we would have hearts of trust and obedience 
and that we would know you well enough that we can just rest whatever it is in your hands and be bold and courageous. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.